From Daylight, I'm Kazuki Akiba. I'm Brandon Beiser. And this is Sayonara Baseball. This is a podcast where you and I find unseen baseball gems by analyzing them alongside different trends, news, and motivation behind many moves around the league today. On today's episode, we discuss the storied history of baseball at the confluence of three rivers in Pittsburgh. Welcome to a special episode of Sayonara Baseball. My name is Brandon Beiser, and behind the scenes at the control panel is Kazuki Akiba. Today is a special day for us as we continue our guest series that we first started in 2020 and are bringing back on 2022 with the same guest that joined us for the first time. Now I'm gonna do this in my best Johnny Gilbert voice because I am a fan of Jeopardy and that show has been the best of all things the last couple of years in particular. And Alex Trebek is the absolute legend, so is Johnny Gilbert. So a graphic designer and baseball historian from now inside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Todd Ray. Todd, welcome back. And thank you for being our first repeat guest on Sign Our Baseball. I am uh, humbled and honored to be back with you. Uh, I think I probably said it last time, first time, not the last time. So here we are. It's taken a little bit, but uh, great to be back with both of you. Well, I appreciate that. And we appreciate that. Great. So today's episode, we are going to discuss the history of baseball, the confluence of three rivers. When everyone said, you mentioned America and three rivers, we all kind of know where we're going. And it's the Ohio, the Allegheny, and the Monongahela. So our friends, we are traveling across the state of Pennsylvania from where Todd is to Pittsburgh. Now, a little bit of background as to why we're doing this. In 2013, I enrolled at the University of Pittsburgh's Katz Graduate School of Management. If you were looking at, if you were able to see my background right now with my shoulder, there are a bunch of diplomas that say I went to Pitt and graduated my MBA. Very fancy looking thing. Very proud of it. But where Katz's Mervis Hall is, where it's housed, it's in the foreground of this very odd-shaped road. There's a plaque at the base of the school entrance. And there's a baseball diamond, like a little, like, little, looks like a little lily diamond now. But the sign is more important. The sign says, welcome to the home of Forbes Field. I had no idea what Forbes Field was until about my second year in October. Because on a Sunday, I was walking by and I saw about 75 people in camping chairs with a radio hooked up to a loudspeaker playing something. So I bothered to ask them, what is this? We're replaying the World Series. And being my naive self, I asked, Pittsburgh Pirates won a World Series. And I started to learn a little bit more about what Forbes Field was. I come to New York. I'm, I, I work in New York for a little bit. I, I learn. And one of my friends has a shirt that says Forbes Field on. Why do you have this shirt? Well, as, you, as the irony, as you can look this up, Kazuki and I used to work together at Forbes. So I, the irony has lost me, but... Little did I know then in 2013 and 2014 and in now, I was walking on some of those hallowed grounds in all of American sports history. So naturally, we called up our friend Todd, our baseball historian, who is currently wearing a very nice Pittsburgh Pirates hat to talk about the Pittsburgh Pirates. 
So we're going to start from the very beginning because I think to go through this, and you sent me some wonderful resources over the last couple of months to re- review. So we're going to start from the beginning of the about Pittsburgh Pirates. We're going to we're going to provide some other notes because Pittsburgh was not the only the Pirates were the only team that existed there. There was another team, and then we're going to kind of go through the history of the Pirates because that ground where Mervis Halls currently stands and that plaque still sits was only the beginning of what the Pirates were and what that what it means to them. So we'll start them. So the Pittsburgh Pirates were not known as the Pirates originally. They were known as the Pittsburgh Alleghenies in the late 1800s, but they were not part of Major League Baseball. They were part of what was known as the American Association. And I've heard that name before, but what is the American Association? Yeah, so the American Association was a rival to the National League. The National League was founded in 1876. It was actually the second major league, the National Association was founded in 1871. It was kind of a loose organization of clubs and was destined to fail because of the structure. But from the ashes of the NA rises the National League. And this is the same National League that plays today. Little trivia question. Uh, charter member of the National League uh, that has that is still in the league and has played continually since the beginning is the Atlanta Braves. The 2021 World Series champions started in Boston. They moved to Milwaukee. They wind up in Atlanta. The Chicago Cubs have been members of the National League since 1876. They were, you know, they date back even further than that. But when uh, the the uh, city of Chicago burned in 1871, uh, the team now known as the Cubs had a dropout league. So anyway, we move forward. And uh, the uh, Pittsburgh Alleghenies, as you referenced, were charter members of this American Association. So what is the what, what's the you know for a business perspective, what is the the angle here that the AA is looking to to do that the NL is not doing? Well, the AA offered cheaper ticket prices. This is what they were famous for. They played on Sundays, Sunday games, uh, which were a huge benefit in terms of attracting immigrants, new immigrants in places like Pittsburgh. All these factory workers that came from Europe. Uh, they didn't have time to, you know, take off during the week. They probably got one day off a week. It was a Sunday and the National League did not play on Sundays. And perhaps most importantly, the American Association sold beer to their patrons at games. So this was a challenge to the very state National League. Uh, there is a book uh, from, I think, from the 90s called The Beer and Whiskey League. And it's about the AA. And finally, Brandon, uh, four former American Association clubs are now part of Major League Baseball, all National League. The Pirates, as we are going to talk about, they defected to the National League in 1887. The Cincinnati Reds, they moved to the National League from the AA in 1889. The Dodgers, first Brooklyn, now Los Angeles, they moved in 1890. And lastly, the St. Louis Cardinals began life in the American Association as the St. Louis Browns. And they moved to the NL in 1892. So you've led to my next question. What was this effect? Like what brought on the defection from, I guess the four teams you mentioned, the Pirates in particular, but all these teams defected from this, I would say rival league to, you know, the superior institution of the National League. So what, how did that happen? And like I said, when this happened, as we know through history, 
the Allegheny's name drop. And it became what we know as the Pirates. Since then, over 100 plus years, they've been known as the Pirates. So how did they become defectors and then, you know, part of, you know, the superior institution? So a couple of things happened. The structure of the American Association, um, they lasted for 10 years, which is kind of an eternity for a rival league. Things are so much different back then. There's no broadcast, obviously. There are no streaming rights, nothing like there's no merchandise. Barely probably any radio at that point, too. No, it's all about ticket sales and attracting fans. And uh, if you're going to do that, you have to have strong financing. So there were what I would call various gripes that caused each of these clubs to move to the more established National League. Uh, At this time, 1880s, very early 1890s, you've got a series of financial uh, uh, issues in the United States, including a depression. So money is fluctuating. Ticket sales are fluctuating. They each wanted stability, I think, ultimately, ultimately is what it was all about. Um, so the 18, uh, the Alleghenies, again, formed in 1882. 1887, they go to the National League to replace a team that was uh, a one-year wonder. There was a team played uh, that played in Kansas City for one season in the National League, 1886. They were called the Kansas City Cowboys. And they uh, were put in KC in the National League on a trial basis for the 1886 season. It was a tremendous failure. Just imagine how far Kansas City is from the East Coast in a world where you've got trains and no other way of getting there, right? No cars, no airplanes. So Pittsburgh swooped in and became a member of the National League, effectively replacing the Kansas City Cowboys for the 1887 season. And there, and there you have it. That, and that begins the legacy that we know as today as the Pittsburgh Pirates. So they, they're now part of the National League. And we're progressing a couple of years into the future. And a very important player joins that team. I believe the player who was on the most, most auc- highest valued auction baseball card until recently. And that's Honus Wagner. So who is Honus Wagner? just as a context. And how did Honus Wagner join the Pittsburgh Pirates? Well, let's back this up for one second because we dropped the ball on something that you referenced. So how did the Alleghenies become known as the Pirates? Oh, so that actually dates to... Very important. Yeah, 1891, uh, where the Pittsburgh franchise got some new ownership. So they've been in the National League for a couple of years. And uh, because of a, um, a paperwork snafu, essentially... Uh, they signed a very, um, I think, uh, up and coming or, you know, kind of starish, we'll call him second baseman named Lou Bierbauer. He had previously played with the American Association's Philadelphia Athletics. No relation to the Oakland Athletics of today, by the way. So the A's failed to include him on their reserve list. This is before free agency. The Pittsburgh franchise swoops in. They signed this guy. They were not guilty of any kind of wrongdoing or unethical behavior, but this uh, this act of piracy uh, gave them the nickname Pirates in 1891. And here we are all these years later. They're still called the Pirates, now officially a nickname. But let's jump forward several years to Honus Wagner. So Honus Wagner played for a team called the Louisville Colonels in the National League. The National League was bloated. Uh, 
uh, in the mid to late 1890s. They had 12 franchises. This was far too many. As I said just a few minutes ago, uh, this was a time when the United States was experiencing recessions and literal depressions and uh, financial busts and, you know, all these things were going on. So the National League uh, basically contracted from 12 to 18. They lopped off four franchises, including the Louisville Colonels, okay? Onus Wagner was a rising star with the Louisville Colonels. I'm pretty sure he was in something like his third National League season, and he was a five-tool player. This guy who was built like, uh, I mean, you'd have to, like a barrel with incredibly muscular arms was a five-tool player. The guy had a rifle for an arm. He had incredible speed uh, at a time when speed really was a pretty significant part of the game. He could head for power. This guy could do it all. He, he was a very unlikely-looking five-tool superstar, but that's exactly what he was. So when the NL contracted from 12 to 18s, Louisville Colonels get excised. The owner of the Pirates uh, was the same guy who owned the Louisville Colonels. Okay, there was cross ownership. He was a guy named Barney Dreyfus. Dreyfus purchased half ownership in the Pittsburgh Pirates. So what happened was when the Colonels got uh, uh, contracted out of the National League, he took Wagner and several other of his top Louisville players with him to Pittsburgh, and they soon became a powerhouse. I, I love I love the story. It sounds like college football today. Like the coach leaves. And yeah. like a bunch of his players follow or his assistants follow. <laughs> no so, transfer portal there. Right, it's a transfer, no it's transfer, transfer portal, portal in, in late 1890s baseball. So Honus Wagner joins the Pirates. And like you said, incredible instant success, near instant success. But with this new instant success, they, join, they build a new home. And it's the home that I went to school on. Forbes Field is built. And the imagery of what I remember from seeing Forbes Field and what was built around it for University of Pittsburgh was it was a massive institution. It was this humongous thing that sat right on like the side of a cliff, it looked like in, in Pittsburgh. And obviously, University of Pittsburgh, you always give me a picture of University of Pittsburgh today, but not maybe not quite then. The Cathedral of Learning, this tower that stood atop it looking down, it was palatial almost looking. So they start winning. They win their first World Series in 1909 in their new home. So take us through that kind of like that evolution a little bit. Yeah, so uh, the Alleghenies and the Pirates played uh, in a series of ballparks. Uh, I believe all of them were called Exposition Park. The first Exposition Park was located roughly between what's now Heinz Field or whatever it's called now, you know, I'm thrown for a loop like so many other people of what it's called, and the Pirates' current home, which is PNC Park, beautiful ballpark. Uh, so it's on the, uh, what would that be, the left bank uh, of the, of I was there last year, right? Um, persistent flooding forced them to move to a higher ground, right? So this is going on. The Pirates are successful. Um, there are a series of... Um, modern ballparks that are coming online at this time. Concrete and steel instead of wood. Wooden ballparks burning down all the time, collapsing. Bad things are happening like that. And at the same time that Forbes Field is being built in 1909, 
you're at least uh, somewhere in the vicinity of a couple of other ballparks coming online several years later, including Wrigley Field in Chicago, now with the ballpark now known as Wrigley Field, which opened in 1914, and Boston's Fenway Park in 1912. To your point earlier, Brandon, I think it's really interesting. You look at pictures of uh, Forbes Field and where it was, and um, I'd urge anybody listening to take a look at this, and you, of course, know this, but it was really in like kind of a pastoral park-like setting, this beautifully landscaped area a couple of miles outside of downtown Pittsburgh. Now, you think of Wrigley, you think of Fenway, which both are, of course, standing today, Scheib Park here in Philadelphia. These cities were built in a, uh, an urban streetscape, and their, their uh, dimensions conformed to the streets that surrounded the parcel of land on which these ballparks were built. Um, Forbes Field, on the other hand, was completely, completely, completely different uh, out there, you know, in, the, on, in this collegiate setting out there. So it's kind of interesting. But the big thing is, as you stated, it was tremendous. It was something like 25,000 seats, which was pretty big for the time. Um, Braves Field in Boston, another ballpark that uh, opened up several years thereafter, um, was gigantic by comparison. But all these, these stadiums had these elements in common. They were bigger. They were more stable. They offered greater sources of revenue, sounds like today. And most importantly, they were fireproof, built out of uh, steel and brick. And uh, all these ballparks endured well into uh, the 1960s or 70s, if not beyond, in the case of Fenway and Wrigley. Right. Well, we know some of them are still still currently existing about the renovations, obviously. But Forest Field obviously is not. But Forest Field was kind of like this. It was a definitely a, a, a different setting. I mean, even the the if you take a look at the pictures today for everyone who wants to look, it's Shenley Park. It's it's part of this this area that's like pastoral. It's like there's the school, there's a big green space, and then it connects between. Carnegie Mellon and University of Pittsburgh is this road that kind of connects it. It's just this beautiful, like cliffside setting, but it's this massive area that fit an entire baseball stadium. Think about how big a baseball stadium is today, right there. So they moved to Forbes Field. They win a World Series in 1909, but that wasn't. They kept winning. Obviously, they had the immense talent of Honus Wagner, among others, but they kept winning and they won a lot at Forest Field in their early years, which kind of has kind of struck people a little bit. So how good were they? How good were they in the early 1900s? Well, prior to Forbes Field, let's move back a couple of years. The 1900 team uh, was, you know, like around then, this, this, they're becoming dominant term of the 20th century. By 1903, the American League, which was founded in 1901, uh, and the National League, which again, was founded in 1876, came to this agreement to play what we now know as the World Series. There was a World Series that existed between the American Association and the National League. Uh, many people don't recognize it as such, but it was actually called the World Series. And it really was the World Series. But let's call the modern World Series exactly what that is, the modern World Series. The Pirates and the team now known as the Boston Red Sox, then known as the Boston Americans, played in the first modern World Series in 1903. Uh, the Red Sox or the, the Americans defeated Pittsburgh and the Pirates were always right up there at the uh, you know top of the standings, tenders, knocking at the door. Again, Hall of Fame, future Hall of Famers, a lot of talent. 
1909, the Pirates win the World Series, but fairly soon thereafter, um, Wagner starts to age. And again, with a body like his, look at pictures of him. If you're not familiar, for anybody who's listening, um, the Pirates began to slip uh, in the 1910s. And by 1917, uh, they really hit rock bottom. They finished 51 and 103, 51 wins, 103 losses, a far cry from only several years earlier. But they are about to uh, uh, install some new talent um, with uh, some veterans and young players, guys like Tom Trainer, um, Max Carey came aboard. And uh, they had a great pitching staff at this time, and they began to rebuild. And they rebuilt pretty quickly. The National League at that time is eight teams. You've got teams like the St. Louis Cardinals who are starting to dominate. Um, but the Pirates started to rebuild. And by the mid-20s, they are back in business. And by then, Honus Wagner is long retired. And the uh, the Pirates are ready to take on the world. And, and that's a great lead into the establishment of what we will jokingly maybe call your noisy neighbors. But Forbes Field in the late 20s, began to be a shared home to a team in the Negro Leagues. So I'll first, before we get into the, the team, was it, uh, is it common to, or was it even common to share like a National League or an American League team and a Negro League team, and let alone the same city, the same stadium? I mean, that was quite a juxtaposition at the time, I presume. Yeah, it was. And uh, the answer to that is it was very common. Uh, the the we'll, we'll talk about the team that you're going to reference in a moment, and it extends this part of the conversation as well. But it was an additional source of revenue for major league team owners, uh, many of which owned the stadiums that, they, that their teams played in. And when you think about it, particularly at the time of the Great Depression, Great Depression starts in 1929 with the stock market crash, lasts into the 1930s. You had a, a series of major league stadiums and major league teams, um, the, the ballparks also hosting Negro League teams. Plain and simple, put another event on the calendar and uh, be a landlord for the day and uh, you've got money coming in. Right. So now let's talk about the team. And this team is the Homestead Grays. Now, how did I learn who the Homestead Grays was? Were There's a bridge in Pittsburgh, a towering bridge across, I have pulled up a map to get it correct. Across the Monongahela, there's a towering bridge from Pittsburgh to an area called Moon Hall or Moon Hall, which is the home, and also is an area called Homestead. It's on the waterfront. It is, like I said, a towering bridge, but they didn't play in Homestead originally. They played in Pitts in the proper city of Pittsburgh. And this team was immense. I mean, but we'll get to the, the time where they're immense. But they spent limited time at Forbes Field before crossing the river over to the area of Homestead. And then they split their time in Homestead, in Homestead, Pennsylvania, and Washington, D.C. They were completely mobile throughout a lot of their life. But over this team's history, 17 seasons in the Negro Leagues. They won three Negro League World Series championships and nine National League, nine National League pennants, Negro National League pennants. The 1931 Homestead Grays has been regarded by some baseball historians 
in some historians of African-American culture, of all of American history, as the single greatest baseball team in all. Five Hall of Famers on this team. Josh Gibson, Oscar Charleston, Judd Wilson, Smokey Joe Williams, and Willie Foster was this was the five Hall of Famers on this team. In addition, you had Vic Harris, George Scales, and Ted Radcliffe. Cumberland Posey was the manager. Those names may not ring so clearly with you now, but at that time, that's better than like the best Yankees team. I mean, this team was incredible, but they were also independent. They weren't, a, they were at that 1931 team was not associated with a team, a league. So looking at these players, both individually and collectively, because now I guess that they're five Hall of Famers. How good were they? And what do they really mean to baseball? Because I said they're all five, half that team is in the Hall of Yeah, I mean, and again, they, the how good are they really speaks to the tragic aspect of the Negro Leagues, which is that these men were not given an opportunity to compete with their white counterparts. And, you know, therefore it becomes a theoretical exercise to, to compare. Um, you know, I had the great good honor and privilege of knowing Buck O'Neill, uh, fairly recent baseball hall of famer. And, you know, he said this throughout his, uh, the later part of his life when he became an ambassador to the world for the Negro leagues. And he said it to me personally, um, that, um, you know, black, the Negro leagues were, a huge source of income, black owned business. Great pride in that. My friend Bob Kendrick, who is the president of the Negro, Negro League Baseball Museum, has said this as well, says it every day. Um, and yeah, I mean, so, but anyway, to go back to it, I mean, this was an incredible team, obviously. They, they would stack up against many major league teams of the era. Uh, it would be such an amazing, you know, let's go back in time and, you know, have an actual game, not a simulated game of what those 1931 Homestead Grays uh, would look like against the St. Louis Cardinals or the Philadelphia Athletics or the Yankees of their era. But we'll never get to do that. But some amazing talent there. And uh, I have to say the last time I was in Pittsburgh was last year. I went to a Pittsburgh Pirates game at beautiful PNC Park with my friend Sean Gibson, who is the great grandson of Josh Gibson. Sean runs the Josh Gibson Foundation. Look them up. Uh, they do great work in the Pittsburgh community. Uh, make a contribution if you possibly can. I'm talking to anybody listening out there. They do really great work in keeping the memory of Josh alive. A uh, great mural. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's in Homestead because I remember it is. driving across it's that gorgeous. bridge last year. I think it's on the side of a brewery. But uh, what an immense um, legacy they leave behind. And um, candidly, the Pirates have not always done a great job of honoring the Grays and their Negro League, uh, Pittsburgh baseball history. Um, they've kind of come around the last couple of years. Um, and uh, if you go to PNC Park now, um, Josh Gibson, I know, was inducted into the Pittsburgh Pirates Hall of Fame, even though he never played for the club. I'm pretty sure they signed him to an honorary one-day contract. Um, but the history of baseball in Pittsburgh is rich. The history of African-American baseball in Pittsburgh is immensely rich. I, I couldn't agree more. And like I said, it, it, it's, it's, it, we all know that the historical context of how they simply were not 
playing against their white counterparts. And as someone who had to learn the story of these players, that should not, and I hopefully in history does not take away from how good they were. Because like I said, like the, when I was researching this, everyone came back to the fact that this team is so good, you could not replicate that conceptually in today's era or anywhere, like you said, you simulate it. And they never had a chance to even play against the counterparts or, who were you know, winning the quote unquote World Series. But like yeah, I said, Josh I'm, Gibson is definitely the player that I recognize the most. Like that, that mural and that image is something that I've, I can't get out of your mind. It's just like he, it, he was like the face of like the best team of all was Josh Gibson. And like you said, yeah. you obviously have a very spiritual privileged relationship with his grand, great grandson. Great grandson. Yep. And, and now, which is incredible. Yeah, and Josh Gibson uh, tragically died very young, um, died in 1947. Several months later, Jackie Robinson uh, uh, plays his first game with the Brooklyn Dodgers. So Josh just missed it, just missed being the first. There was talk of him perhaps being, you know, the first African-American in Major League Baseball. But now, um, because of the research efforts of uh, a lot of people, uh, the Negro Leagues have officially been recognized as part of the major leagues. It's a fairly recent development. And I think because of this research and because of kind of a new perspective uh, on, on the Negro Leagues um, and the unearthing of statistics and, you know, just looking at things in a uh, perhaps a more nuanced way, they are not necessarily separate in, uh, in history anymore. They were uh, without question, and we're never going to get that back. But the Negro Leagues are the major leagues now, and it's an interesting and good thing to keep in mind uh, as we assess uh, things. And, and again, new information comes to light every day that gives us a much fuller, bigger, uh, and better picture of what the Negro Leagues were like. Absolutely. And I will say, uh, to you say you mentioned Bob Kendrick, Negro League Baseball Hall of Fame is in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm the proud owner of a Kansas City Monarchs hat, which is obviously a team that was existed in, in this era. Uh, it's an incredible museum if you get a chance to go. Uh, it will kind of dawn on you about this era of baseball that you may not have heard of. But now, like you said, it's fully included in his, in baseball, in Major League Baseball history. If you go to baseballreference.com, you can look them up now. And that's what matters uh, to a very small degree that you can like recognize like how historic this was. Because the league collapsed, the Negro National League collapsed in 1948. It was gone. Uh, the, the Homestead Grays existed shortly for a couple of years thereafter, uh, winning a total of 947 games, league recognized games in the course of their 17 seasons and a little bit more, I think. But that's, I said, it just, the numbers come jump off the page for how good this franchise was. Yeah, and you know, part of the mystique of the Negro Leagues goes beyond numbers. It's about legends. It's like, you know, great American legends like Paul Bunyan, these larger than life heroes, right? Uh, Josh Gibson, who people say, and you know, it's probably apocryphal. Josh Gibson allegedly hit a baseball out of Yankee Stadium. Well, even if it's not true, and even if he didn't hit, you know, 800 home runs, again, it doesn't detract from the fact that, that these guys were awesome. And Josh Gibson in particular was a, a very deserving Hall of Famer. Um, and, uh, like you just said, you get to the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri, 
it's a little bit of a different kind of museum. Usually, you know, the the analogy would be to the Baseball Hall of Fame uh, in Cooperstown, where the story of the game is told um, via objects in most cases, right? Here is Honus Wagner's uniform. You can see Babe Ruth's bat. You can see this. You can see that. Not a lot of stuff exists from the Negro Leagues. So uh, part of the experience of going to the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City is learning about what America was like, how these guys traveled from city to city. Um, it's a bit of a, a different thing and, um, you know, and, and, and a kind of a different learning experience, uh, both worthy but uh, and both great places. And I'm lucky to have been at both fairly recently. So have I. Last 50, last 10 years. It's pretty incredible. All right. So we have, we have reached kind of our halfway point. So coming up after the break, we're going to travel back to Forbes Field. Return to the history of, of history of baseball in Pittsburgh, starting with the 1960s. And we'll discuss quite possibly the home run heard around the world. Welcome back. We are here with our friend Todd Radom to explore the history of baseball in Pittsburgh. And we are going to enter the 1960 World Series winning season with the Pittsburgh Pirates. And this is the this is the era that starts to be as a resident of Pittsburgh because there's one player, number 21, has the name of his highway on the highway that goes from Patterson to New, Newark, New Jersey. Roberto Clement, the, the great humanitarian of baseball. We'll explain why he is known as a great humanitarian of baseball in a moment. But 1960, we he, he comes on the scene a little bit early, a little bit of that time. So just how significant was the rise of Roberto Clemente so early in his career. Like he was a in Puerto Rico. He moves, plays in Pittsburgh his entire career, but he joins the Pittsburgh Pirates and is instantly so good. Well, a couple of things to keep in mind when we talk about the history of the Pirates during the Clemente era. The Pirates were a pretty moribund franchise in the 1930s for the most part. Uh, certainly in the 40s and immediately after World War II. Um, this is a team that, you know, hadn't participated in a World Series for, you know, for years and years and years. Clemente comes to the Pirates uh, as a rookie in 1955. Now, he was originally drafted by the Brooklyn Dodgers, who left him unprotected uh, on their roster. Um, and the Pirates scoop him up. And Clemente makes his debut, very young guy in Pittsburgh, and he, uh, like Honus Wagner, a five-tool player. The uh, impact of Clemente was not necessarily immediate. He had to, you know, grow into his roles, role, but he was certainly seen as, uh, as a, uh, a guy on the rise, a potential star, a guy with tremendous, tremendous talent and potential. Um, and he's coming up with a team that, uh, you know, rebuilt its farm system, they drafted well before there was a, what we now know as the major league draft. But, you know, they are, uh, they're a team that's not necessarily signing big, big talent players. It's before free agency as well. But they're an up-and-coming team of good young talent, scouted well. Uh, and Clemente is right at the forefront. It's interesting, Brandon, if you, you know, I've done a ton of research into Clemente over the years and his very early years. And there is a lot of, patronizing coverage of him. He's called Bob Clemente. His uh, Latin uh, identity, his very proud Puerto Rican identity 
is shrouded in newspaper quotes that, you know, kind of sound like gibberish. Um, he spoke incredibly, uh, incredibly good English. If you listen to uh, recordings of him, particularly, you know, later on in his career in life. But um, by 1960, Roberto Clemente is certainly one of the best players in baseball. Five years into his career, just imagine, you know, young guy right at his prime. And 1960, the Pirates have uh, a historic season for the ages for this franchise. Yes. And I, I will say that one of the historical facts that I learned about Roberto Clemente in early years is when he was coming up before 1960, he hit a walk-off inside the park Grand Slam, which... Come to think of it, I think happened recently in the major leagues. If not, I, if, I'm going to have to check myself. But recently there was a couple walk-off inside the park. I'm not sure walk-off, but inside the park grand slams. I've seen that uh, recently. It just sounds, how do you do that? It's Roberto Clemente. Like I've, I, I can't really think about anything else to say, but 1960. So 1960, they're playing, they go to the World Series and they're playing the 1960 New York. How good were the 1960 New York Yankees? Well, let's reel off Yankees World Series championships in uh, maybe decade plus prior to then. So post-World War II, let's call it. Uh, Yankees win the World Series in 1947. They win the World Series in 1949. 1950, they take a uh, year off. Uh, well, no, they, they uh, uh, 51, they win uh, again, right? They beat the uh, shot heard around the world, the Giants. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Yankees are winning. I mean, they lose the World Series to the Milwaukee Braves in, uh, you know, in the, in the late 50s. They win the following year. They don't win the World Series in 59. The newly transplanted L.A. Dodgers win the World Series. So the Yankees are, you know, maybe not right in their prime, but America didn't know a time when the Yankees weren't winning multiple World Series uh, and consecutive World Series all the time, right? Um, and eventually, by the middle of the 1960s, the Yankees just fell off a cliff for a multitude of reasons. A lot of uh, theories about the fact that they didn't sign enough African-American players. A lot of great black players going to the National League at this time. Um, they got old in a hurry. But let's go back to 1960. They were the prohibitive favorites to beat the upstart Pirates in the World Series. And uh, spoiler alert, it didn't happen. Did not. So it went to a Game 7. And this is the story in which I learned from these residents of this circle of community that I sat next, that I talked to that sat outside Mervis Hall on an October Sunday. And they told me about a gentleman named Bill Mazeroski and talk about a shot heard around the world to Pittsburgh residents, Pittsburgh Pirates fans. There is one shot heard around the world and it is the game winning walk off home run game seven Pirates defeat the Yankees with the radio broadcast from there. Like I've heard it one, I heard the beginning of it one time, I caught it. And it sounded like what I imagined the concept of, of person like exclaiming like July 4th fireworks. It was immense. It's one of the best radio broadcast moments in baseball history. Probably of, like there are several, but it just, continues like it persists this moment because it was like truly the underdog has beaten the David has beaten Goliath like it felt like that and 
that that's the best way I can explain it. Stunning, stunning. I mean, you know, the Yankees put up a ton of runs in that World Series and lost lost games where, you know, just unlikely. I mean, look at the numbers. Um, and, uh, the, and again, the story goes well beyond the numbers. The ultimate, um, you know, David versus Goliath, the, the Pirates not having been in there in so many years. And certainly, you know, one of the great baseball has tons of great debates about history, right? Greatest team, greatest player, blah, 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 pitchers. Um, what is the greatest home run in the history of baseball? And, uh, you know, you can, you can take your, the if aforementioned shot heard around the world, Bobby Thompson's home run that catapulted the Giants over their hated rivals, the Brooklyn Dodgers, in a National League playoff series in 1951. Well, that didn't decide a World Series. How about Carlton Fisk's Game 6 uh, home run to defeat the Cincinnati Reds and send uh, the the World Series to a decisive seventh game? It, Red Sox didn't win the series, and that wasn't in the seventh game. Joe Carter's 1993 home runs, a walk-off that defeats the Philadelphia Phillies for the World Series. Well, that was in a game six. It was not in game seven. So uh, the idea of this particular man, Bill Mazeroski, at that particular moment, um, hitting a home run, a walk-off home run to beat the New York Yankees in the 1960 World Series, it's just an amazing storyline. And uh, some of the pictures um, of Forbes Field and you know, it's it's astounding. And this is a different baseball, too. Different Major League Baseball. And why is that, Brandon? Because in 1961, Major League Baseball expands. In 1961, the Angels uh, and a, an expansion of Washington Senators team joined the American League. American League goes from eight teams to ten teams. The following season, the team now known as the Astros and the New York Mets joined the National League. So this is the last season where you had essentially the what we'll call the uh, the 16 charter member clubs, eight in one league, eight in the other, uh, and it was a 154-game schedule. We're going to then have 162 games. So it marks the end of an era, and what an astounding way to end it. It was like I said, it was like final. It was like the it was like a, it was like the final bell has rung. It's like we have ended, and now we begin anew. And like I said, it's it's how I discovered this whole story, which we're going to continue now. Uh, we, we've gone to 1960. I'll, I'll progress a little bit through the 1960s because we get to 1970s Pirates a little bit. But we're going to first talk about final season playing at Forest Field. And the finale celebrated the team's sensational star. They played their final game on Roberto Clemente night. He he was a lot. He was, he was on the team still. But it's Roberto Clemente night. And they won another World Series in 1971 in their first season, obviously at Three Rivers, which they now shared with the with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And then we moved to 1972. And this is where tragedy strikes. Because the same season that Roberto Clemente records his 3,000s hit, all with the same team. We all know we all know the story if you're if you're if you're more familiar with baseball. On a humanitarian mission, Roberto Clemente is flying to his native Puerto Rico. And as part of the humanitarian mission, there is a plane crash. And Roberto Clemente passes away. And we all know Roberto Clemente now, today, in baseball history, as the namesake of one of the most prestigious awards in all of sports. So... 
couple of questions to discuss. How significant was the passing of Roberto Clemente to not just baseball, but the world? And why is there that Roberto Clemente Award? So a couple of things. Let me preface the answers to those questions by saying that everybody, if you're a baseball fan, you have your first baseball memory, your first game that you remember going to, a uh, special moment, team, whatever it might be. In my case, my first baseball memory was being seven years old and being at Roberto Clemente night at Shea Stadium in New York in 1971. Okay, The Puerto Rican community of New York City honored Roberto Clemente um, and his charitable deeds, um, and they had a banquet for him. I believe the following night, but this was a Friday night. I went with my parents and my brother, and I remember being seven years old and the outfield fence doors opening beyond center field at Chase Stadium, and a Cadillac is driven out around the, the outfield warning track, and it is driven to home plate, and the Puerto Rican community of New York presents Roberto Clemente with a Cadillac and a giant check. And so if you are seven years old and you're not necessarily a knowledgeable fan and you see this guy who maybe you've heard of and whose older brother is telling you this is a really good player and his father is telling you this is a really good player, well, this guy must be really special. They're giving him a car. They're giving him this gigantic car. And uh, I don't remember a whole bunch from that night, but I remember that distinctly. And I remember he got the game-winning hit. He got two hits that night. I saw him play one more time the following season, also in New York, uh, Mets Pirates. And this is 1972. I saw him play um, probably 10 games removed from the last game of his career and the 3,000th hit of his career, which uh, he attained in Pittsburgh against the Mets. They were in the same division back then, so they played a lot of games together off of John Matlock. So um, my personal memories of Roberto Clemente are tangible, and real. And I remember hearing about the fact that on New Year's, um, New Year's Eve, uh, he was on a humanitarian mission to assist earthquake victims in Nicaragua. Uh, he was on a chartered plane, which was crammed full of food and medical supplies. And uh, the story goes that he was made aware of the fact that this airplane was overweight and perhaps not safe to fly in. But he got in it anyway with all of uh, all of uh, this this stuff to assist these earth earthquake victims. And of course, we now know that the plane crashed tragically, and Roberto Clemente was lost. So his legacy of excellence on the field, and of certainly being um, you know he is so special to the Puerto Rican community um, and to baseball as a whole of being this you know martyr. But I mean, I think it goes deeper than that, candidly. Um, martyrs and saints um, are also, in truth, human beings. And he was a full-fledged human being, a man with a great family legacy, a man who uh, devoted a lot to his adopted city of Pittsburgh. And that's one of the reasons why he's so well remembered there. But um, the fact that he essentially gave his life, tragically, in service of others, that's huge integral part of his legacy. And it's honored today, as you said, with the Roberto Clemente Award. Um, and I have the great honor and privilege here, too, of having designed the logo for that award. I saw it presented here in Philadelphia at the World Series this year. 
Justin Turner of the Dodgers was the recipient. And uh, I think it's really cool because, you know, history has a way of eroding memory. Um, and Roberto Clemente, of course, passed away 50 years ago, but his memory is strong and vibrant still. I didn't know you designed the award logo. That's a, that's a nice little touch to the story. Uh, to me, the Roberto Clemente, I obviously didn't see him play, uh, but you live in Pittsburgh. The memory that I have is very, very distinct and very, and very appropriate. From the downtown Pittsburgh core to the North Shore where PNC Park is today, where Steve Rivers Park was, there are three bridges that crisscross. You can walk across them or you can drive across them. Andy Warhol, one of the great American artists. Rachel Carson, great American scientist. And Roberto Clemente, great American, great American humanitarian. All have ties to the city of Pittsburgh. And it is a distinct ritual and honor when you walk, when you go to a P, when you go to a game by the North shore, you could take the train across underneath. You can drive a car, but it's very special to walk across the bridge to the other side. And the bridge that sits closest to what is now PNC park, of course, is the Roberto Clemente bridge. It is donned in black and yellow as it should be. And as you walk across the bridge, you look into the outfield, which as we all know, was the baseball home of Roberto Clemente. And I think that that's what, it's like I said, it connects to the largest Puerto Rican Hispanic neighborhoods in New Jersey, Highway 21. And it's a big sign for welcome, you are now driving Roberto Clemente Highway. And that's how I think of him. It's just like, I think of him as like, quite possibly one of the greatest Americans of that generation of all time for his service. But he is, like you said, he's like this kind of martyr figure from Puerto Rican heritage. But it's incredible. Like when you see someone who wears a 21 jersey in Pittsburgh, it means a lot. Like we'll talk, we talk about names about Mazeroski, Wagner, like a couple other ones. But like that's one of those jerseys like you know a fan is a real fan of Pittsburgh or, or has a deep connection to the Puerto Rican community when they own a Roberto Clemente. And I, I think that that's what I think of when I think of, you know, Roberto Clemente. It's like, there's a reason why that award exists. And it's because look what he perished doing. He doing the thing that he probably loved possibly more than baseball. Uh, I think that that's what is quite immense about him. But so we have Roberto Clemente, we have that era. And then the late sixties and the seventies of Pittsburgh was rough. I'll say, uh, but they have a new player that joins later in the 70s. They called him Pops. That's Willie Stargell. And Willie Stargell became the franchise's home run leader. And he, of course, was part of another World Series run in 1979. So Willie Stargell comes to Pittsburgh. How does, what, what's his contribution to becoming, obviously, a Pittsburgh legend, let alone the team's franchise home run leader? Well, uh, a couple of things. First of all, of course, the, the Pirates win the World Series in 1971 with Clemente. Uh, and Sardell is pretty established as a star there, a young star at that point. Um, the thing about the Pirates farm system at that time is that they were just continuing to generate young talent. Parker would be another example of that. So Clemente's tragic passing comes at a time when the Pirates are, you know, one of the premier franchises in baseball. 
a World Series champion. They go to the playoffs, you know, um, uh, the expanded playoffs, National League, uh, American League, expand to divisions in 1969. So the Pirates are, you know, kind of Clemente is struck down later on in his career, but uh, at a moment when the Pirates are sort of in their prime uh, as a contending franchise. Well, you know, I'm one of these people that I'm always astounded at uh, who, who, who adjust to leadership roles, particularly in the face of a tragedy. And the thing about Willie Stargell is that he uh, is kind of catapulted as a young-ish player into a position of leadership upon Clemente's passing. And the Pirates, you know, 74, 75, 76 are pretty good. Uh, by 77, you know, they're, they're fighting with the Philadelphia Phillies uh, for uh, preeminence in the National League East. And by 1979, and I remember being a young baseball fan at this time, it was like, wow, you know, the, the Pirates are primed to win another World Series. By 79, uh, he is Pops. He is an esteemed older guy, a veteran, uh, absolute, you know, power hitter, you know, stereotype of a power hitter. Uh, Brandon, I remember going to a Mets Pirates game at Chase Stadium, Old Timers Day at Chase Stadium, 1977, with my father and my uncle sitting in the upper deck far reaches of Shea Stadium, and Willie Stargell hit a bomb that day that I think may still be going 40, you know, five years later. That stadium was huge. He put one in the upper decks in yeah, Shea. We oh, my all, goodness. We, we, I still have the tickets. I know exactly where I was sitting. I got the ticket stubs. I have the program. And, uh, you know, but that was a Willie Stargell did not hit quiet home runs. He hit absolute moonshots. So uh, by 79, the Pirates are primed to win again. Dave Parker was, uh, you know, just an incredible, incredible ball player at that particular moment in time, especially. Pirates had a good balanced team. They had speed. They had pitching. And they were a team that uh, America kind of fell in love with. Uh, and they, they uh, adapted the song We Are Family, which is big on the charts. It's kind of getting toward the end of the disco era at that time. And the Pirates played with great flair. They played in these awesome uniforms. And they really captured uh, America's imagination, even if you weren't a Pirates fan. And of course, it needs to be said, uh, you alluded to it, you know, this is a time when Pittsburgh is in decline. The steel industry, which was the, the powerhouse source of uh, the Pittsburgh economy for so many years, is uh, declining precipitously. And to me, you know, as an outsider, Pittsburgh, you know, when I started visiting Pittsburgh uh, in the in the 80s, you know, Pittsburgh was starting to recover from the decline of the steel industry because of the fact that uh, it had a very strong uh, educational uh, higher learning system. Pittsburgh, Duquesne, blah, 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 Carnegie Mellon um, research institutes and, um, you know, and, and healthcare. Pittsburgh was able to reinvent itself pretty, I don't think it was, it was necessarily seamlessly but it did a lot better, a lot quicker than other, quote unquote, rust belt cities. And part of this was the charm of the Pirates to me, winning the 1979 World Series with Willie Stargell as the captain. Yeah, uh, we can, we'll get into modern Pittsburgh shortly. But yeah, 1979 was like it's their last big hurrah for in terms of World Series. So they win the World Series. Willie Stargell obviously is there. And then in the 80s. Somewhat to the surroundings around them, they, they they went to decline. But later in the year, under Jim Leland, who 
a gen, uh, today's generation definitely knows who Jim Leland is as a manager. They amass talent and the likes of Barry Bonds, Bobby Bonilla, Andy Vance, like who I believe is the third base coach or one of the, he, he's been a third base coach for several years. And then Doug Drayton as like the, like the, like the main fake figureheads of this, of this team. But obviously the, the, the parent people that we all, the, obviously the Mets fans don't want to talk about Barry Bonds and that, that, I mean, that Bobby Bonilla and the contract, but we got Barry Bonds. This is rookie Barry Bonds. Yeah, I mean, um, we, we, we have to, you can't tell the story of the Pirates of the late 80s, early 90s without talking about the Pirates of the early 80s. Uh, there was a scandal that engulfed the club, uh, which involved cocaine. Pittsburgh drug trials happened. It was a huge sullying mark against all of baseball, but particularly Pittsburgh. The Pittsburgh Parrot was even part of this, right? And if you're not familiar with it, take a look at it. It's kind of astounding. At the same time, Pittsburgh is undeniably a city in decline. Pirates are hemorrhaging money. The team isn't good. There was there were real rumblings about the team leaving Pittsburgh at various times. There were discussions about the Pirates moving to Denver this is before the Rockies existed and perhaps moving to uh, New Orleans. But of course, none of that came to pass. And uh, local business people, uh, civic leaders in Pittsburgh, pulled together to save the Pirates for the city of Pittsburgh. And they did a, an amazing thing because, of course, the team is still there. They were pretty close to leaving, though, and uh, there was not a lot of reason for them to stay. But the Pirates rebuild themselves on the field. And to your point, they uh, amass just a, uh, an envious well of talent. I remember seeing Barry Bonds as a rookie in, uh, you know, 86, 87, whatever that was. And, uh, I mean, he was cut. He was not the Barry Bonds that came later, but uh, an immense talent. Bonilla was uh, baseball's uh, uh, brightest young star, uh, arguably, um, at this moment in time. Drabeck was a solid pitcher. And the Pirates knocked at the door for uh, those three years, and they just couldn't get out of the National League Championship Series. Dangerous team that ran into a couple of buzzsaws along the way. And, uh, you know, so often in sports, we see teams that have this uh, precipitous window that uh, is open for a team to win. And that window closes and the window closed on the Pirates. And honestly, we haven't heard a whole lot from them since. And that was a long time ago. Right. I mean, after that, after that time, it's it's the doldrums of Pittsburgh. The Pirates became, a, became the basement dwellers of the NL for a long time. But there was one redeeming quality about the Pittsburgh Pirates a decade later, the early 2000s. In the early 2000s, the um, incredible decision was made to take the two cohabitants of Free River Stadium and bring, give them their own homes next door to each other. The North Shore was expanding a little bit. So what was Three River Stadium was now going to be split into two. Heinz Field, now Acrisure Stadium by name only, but not by history, and PNC Park. It's the first time since 1970 that the Pirates had a home of their own and not share with the Steelers. Now, you've been to PNC Park. I've been to PNC Park. I'm going to go on the record. And I will defend this, that PNC Park is the most, is the best baseball stadium. 
out there. And it ranks higher. Number two is Hampton Yards. I know it's the modern edifice of what a good baseball stadium is. When I sat in a $6 seat atop the behind home plate at PNC Park at a seven o'clock night, clear night and look straight over the Allegheny River into downtown Pittsburgh. I honestly question if that was what heaven looked like. Because the sunset comes over the top of you and reflects over the, over the river. And it, you couldn't tell they were buildings anymore. It just looked like, like light was coming through and reflecting everywhere. I couldn't believe how they batted in this setting. But that view, that cut out, and that location is incredible. As a, as a fan, as a, as a person who studied the game for so long, like what is PNC Park like? When Yeah, I mean, I went to PNC Park the first season in 2001. And of course, having seen it on TV and having seen pictures, you know, you can't, until you experience it, it kind of pictures don't do justice. Uh, and I just remember, literally, this is exactly what I thought. This is like Disney invented this. Like the backdrop is unbelievable. Pittsburgh, of course, is blessed to have a very interesting skyline and all those bridges at different angles. Talked about the Clemente Bridge, the colors, the yellow bridges, the you know pointy spires, modern architecture, um, all of those angles. And PNC is just perfectly situated to capture all of this stuff. Um, talk about three rivers for a second. So when PNC was constructed, Open, I think it's the fastest construction of any modern MLB park, just something under two years. I mean, it's a pretty small stadium, too, which was kind of revolutionary when it was open. But, you know, it was built for a population the size of Pittsburgh, which is not Los Angeles, right? So we had these cookie cutter concrete donuts, as people call them, multi-purpose stadiums in Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and Cincinnati, which... I was at all of them. They all look exactly the same. St. Louis, by dint of the architecture and by dint of the location, a little bit different, looked a little bit different. So St. Louis uh, builds a new stadium in 2006. Philadelphia builds a new ballpark that replaced Veteran Stadium, opened up in 2004. Cincinnati replaces their, you know, Riverfront slash Synergy, opened in 2002. So PNC is kind of at the forefront. It was all happening right then. This huge uh, a boom, construction boom of, uh, of stadiums, both in baseball and football, separate facilities. You know, it was not growing and up. And they were uh, neighboring. Like in all yeah. the cities you have described, they're like in neck, well, St. Louis is an NFL team. But in Philadelphia, they are across the street. Pittsburgh, they are across the street. And I believe in Cincinnati, they're also across the street. It's uh, first. Close enough. First. It's, they're yeah. close enough. Paul Brown's. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, this, this was the thing um, I, I do recall reading about how when they were discussing a new ballpark in Philadelphia, eh, there were people who wanted to put it downtown. There was opposition from the community, uh, which it was supposed to be constructed at, which is not far from where the Philadelphia 76ers are proposing a new arena right now. But Philadelphia has, you know, all their stadiums kind of, you know, in South Philly. It's been that way since the first stadium was constructed there in the 1920s. So all the sports are there. They're kind of used to it. Um, yeah, I mean, and this was the thing, you know, multi-purpose stadiums were bad to watch baseball in for the most part and bad to watch football in for the most part. You know, and like I said, I grew up going to Shea Stadium in uh, New York. I went to plenty of games at Yankee Stadium. 
wasn't a whole lot of, uh, wasn't multi-purpose there at that particular point in time. But, um, you know, these round stadiums, the sight lines were not great. So PNC comes along and uh, is a game changer um, in certain respects because of the fact that, again, it's a, it's a Pittsburgh-sized Major League Baseball stadium. It's a ballpark. It's not a stadium. <laughs> it's constructed of honest materials that look like Pittsburgh. You can walk to it from downtown. But importantly, Brandon, we have to point out the fact, sadly, that, uh, and I'll just put this out there, the fan base has not been rewarded with uh, winning teams. I mean, there was a no, that, the time, you've... almost 10 years ago when McCutcheon was there. Um, but, you know, this is a, a franchise that cries poor mouth. Um, and, and, you know, listen, we've seen teams like the Tampa Bay Rays go to the World Series 2008 again in 2020. Um, the Kansas City Royals won a World Series, right? Um, teams with lesser resources, quote unquote, and they all have significant resources. Let's not kid ourselves. Pittsburgh fans deserve better. And this ballpark has never hosted a World Series game. Camden Yards in Baltimore, too. 1979-1971 World Series, Orioles-Pirates. When I was younger, these are two amazing franchises, dominant franchises. It's hard to believe now. So we need an Orioles uh, who seem to be on the upswing. Orioles, Pirates. I mean, World that would Series. be the about the best baseball stadiums there is. But you've, you've kind of led into the final point, the final history marker. And that was 2013 when I lived there, 2014-2015, the wild card burst. I have a shirt that says October. Like, like it's like a pirate. There's a pirate saying that it's beautiful. Andrew McCutcheon era, AJ Burnett obviously was in his prime then. And that was the era where like the one is the first year, the one game wild card, I believe. And that they played in Pittsburgh and it was like the city had taken over. And obviously the Steelers are fantastic. The Penguins are immense. Talk about a team with history there too. And the colleges with all their talent. And that's kind of overshadowed at least in the last decade plus anything that's happened at PNC Park. Uh, hopefully they can get better. Yeah, but, it's sad. It's sad. You know, and, and you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not from there, but I'm certainly, you know, I know, I know enough to think like maybe you need an ownership change. Uh, you've had an ownership change. Previous regime was not, you know, they built PNC Park, but, um, here we are, we're going on, uh, you know, except for that brief blip moment in time where, uh, as you said, McCutcheon in his prime, very fun team, never quite got over the hump, but contended. Um, but it's not enough because that city and that stadium, uh, deserve sustained postseason baseball, deserve a world series, uh, so that the eyes of the nation can see just how great a city that is. Uh, and and what a what a great ballpark that is too. Uh, I think that that's a perfect way to end up. So just looking back at everything we talked about before we close out our show, as someone who's observed baseball for a number of years, what are your thoughts on what Pittsburgh has meant in the history of baseball? From the Homestead Grace, the Alleghenies, to Honus Wagner, to all the players, Clemente, Mazeroski, Sargell. I mean, today when we, people don't know how good they were, but when they were good, they were amazing. And the people that resided in the, on that team are legends. Like they are people that are like, they will, they're in the Hall of Fames, multiple Hall of Fames uh, along the yeah. way. Yeah. 
I mean, listen, what an incredible, you know, a lot of cities can lay claim to incredible sports histories. Um, but again, the the absolute giants of Josh Gibson, uh, as we discussed before, and of Roberto Clemente and Honus Wagner and, uh, you know, a host of others that came through that city and played baseball there. And again, it's tinged by this sadness that time kind of stops the Bonds and Bonilla teams that we talked about just a few minutes ago. Um, you know, could it could have they were contenders and unfortunately they never got over that hump. But time kind of stops, and that is a long time ago. So, you know, history, I think, you know, there's this continuum that you look to uh, to connect a Honus Wagner who played in the, the 19th century, for goodness sake, uh, to whoever the star is going to be five years from now or 10 years from now. And you want to cultivate a young, younger generation of fans. And it's kind of sad because, again, um, it kind of like, boom, it all falls off the cliff to me at a certain point in time. Um, but the history cannot be denied. It's incredibly rich. There's something to be learned from without question. Um, and the memory of these, the memories, plural, endure. But let's get some new memories and some winning teams and gin up some enthusiasm. The fans deserve it. I agree. And as someone who is saying the Pittsburgh Penguins, I was there for, I believe, one Pittsburgh Penguins Stanley Cup playoff and final and win. Please bring it home. Just bring it home one more time. I don't, I don't live in Pittsburgh anymore, but you got to get the black and yellow one more time. It's the only city where all the teams, professional, share the same color scheme. And that is so very that, much by design. You know, right. the, the, you probably know this, you know, the, the Pittsburgh Pirates for many, many years up until the uh, late 1940s were pretty much red and blue. Um, the Steelers, who were originally called the Pittsburgh Pirates, right? They come along. Uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins, an expansion team, the second NHL uh, team. I would I would be remiss if I didn't uh, promote the book that I wrote with uh, sportslogos.net's Chris Creamer called Fabric of the Game. The stories behind the NHL, every NHL team's names, how they got their names and looks and logos. Pittsburgh uh, Pirates uh, of the of the NHL in the 20s, they wore the city colors, which are black and gold. And finally, the Pittsburgh Penguins, who were parading around in blue and uh, or like powder blue and black uh, in the uh, early eight, late 70s, early 80s, they adopt uh, the black and gold as a unifying force when this city is going through challenging times and they're glomming on to the championship Pittsburgh Pirates and the Boston Bruins objected to the fact that the, they, they said, we own these colors in the NHL uh, and the uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins were actually buying their uniforms from the Boston Bruins pro shop at that time. You can look it up, as Casey Stengel once said, and he played in Pittsburgh. <laughs> so a long-winded way of saying that uh, all of this is, is by design and it's pretty cool. Yeah, so on that note, we, it's time to close out the show. So thank you again for being our friend and coming back on our show again for being our first repeat guest about one of the most important cities in all of sports history and let alone baseball history. Now, the last time we did our closeout show, we had our, we had our three strikes in your out segment. Change that up. It's one question. It's a walk-off question, but it's about a walk-up moment. We did a whole season. We still do it, collecting people's walk-up or entrance song, all by design because... Mariano Rivera's Enter Sandman by Metallica is 
in, in our souls. With that question in mind, you're on the spot. It's your turn to walk up to that or enter from the bullpen. What song do you want to come on? <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking of Trevor Hoffman with Hell's Bells and that, you know, that ballpark, just electric. Uh, I am going to have to say, you know, I work with uh, Ice Cube and have for a number of years now on his Big Three Basketball League, work with him on some music and TV stuff too along the way. But uh, I would have to say uh, it was a good day by Ice Cube because I'm an optimist and uh, it's, it's, you know, the song kicks and uh, just makes me smile thinking about it. So I'm going with that. It's a great choice. It's a great choice. Well, love a good, love a good, little bit of West Coast hip hop. It's, it's always yeah. good there. Well, th- well, thank you very much. We appreciate that. Once again, thank you to Todd Radom for joining us today. You can follow all of Todd's work. You can follow his book, Fabric of the Game. Uh, and you can find all that on ToddRadom.com. Todd, thank you. Thank you. Greatly. It's a pleasure being back with you. I appreciate it and uh, look forward to talking soon. This has been Sinar Baseball. And once again, we'll see you on the field again soon. That's it for this episode of Sinar Baseball. This episode of Sinar Baseball is hosted and produced by me, Kazuki Akiba and Brandon Beiser. This episode was edited by Kazuki Akiba with additional research by Brandon Beiser. Our theme song is by Kay Margus. Sinar Baseball is a production of Daylight and Media 3 Limited. We'll be back with another episode. If you like this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast as more people will know about this show. Go to daylightinteractive.com to see some exclusive updates and more about our upcoming shows. I'm Kazuki Akiba. And I'm Brandon Beiser. And this has been Sound Art Baseball.